Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day, with our free daily email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course at our website, SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the home studio in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I am joined from Nashville, Tennessee, by Tennessee Provincial Party Secretary Jeremy Gold. <laughs> Corn, who was denied a seat on the Politburo Standing Committee, as I understand, only because he refused to dye his hair black. Is that? Is that can you confirm those rumors, Secretary Goldcorn? I neither <laughs> confirm or deny anything. But will you greet the listeners? Hello, Kaiser. And hello, listeners. Uh, hello. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? Uh, so this week, Jeremy, marks the 80th anniversary of the Nanjing Massacre, also known as the Rape of Nanjing, the Rape of Nanking, which began with the fall of the Republic's capital on December 13th, 1937. A few events in modern Chinese history have an historical valence that's comparable with the Nanjing Massacre, the wholesale slaughter of Chinese soldiers and civilians, the notorious killing contests, and of course the horrific sexual violence visited on Chinese women during the six weeks that followed uh, the fall of Nanjing are, are something that virtually all Chinese are aware of. The Nanjing Massacre has assumed portions of something I would call a sacred wound in China's historical consciousness. Uh, but the facts of what happened are contested in some quarters, most notably among rightists in Japan. Uh, and the understanding and interpretation of the Nanjing Massacre remains a major issue in relations between China and Japan. So today we are delighted to have as our guest Rana Mitter, Professor of History and Politics of Modern China at Oxford University, where he is the director of the China Center. He is the author of several excellent books on China, most recently China's War with Japan, 1937 to 1945, The Struggle for Survival, which was released in the US with the title Forgotten Ally, China's War with Japan. 1937 to 45. Rana is also a fellow of the British Academy, and he joins us for the second time on Seneca. Rana, welcome back to Seneca. Jeremy and Kaiser, it's a great pleasure to be back here on Seneca and to be discussing the subject of China's wartime history and its meaning for the present day. It's also a huge privilege for me to be here, courtesy of Facing History and the Asia Society of Hong Kong. On the day that I'm speaking to you here on this podcast, I will in fact be addressing a live audience here in Hong Kong this evening on this very important subject. And I have to say, I feel very honored to do so. Yeah, I want to thank our friends at Facing History and ourselves, especially Juan Castellanos, who is helping us out with the recording there in Hong Kong. Uh, Facing History and Ourselves is a nonprofit educational and professional development organization uh, founded in 1976 by educators who wanted to instill more intellectual vigor and curiosity in history education. Uh, they focus on moments of collective violence in history, like the Holocaust, uh, to encourage students to reflect on ethical and moral decision-making and the range of human behavior. 
Facing History is making a special effort this year to arrange programming about the Nanjing Massacre and its uh, relevance to contemporary politics and to international relations. And Juan uh, has contributed some of the questions that we're going to be asking Rana today. We hope this podcast uh, helps with Facing History's mission and that the educators and students who, who end up listening to this uh, find some insights uh, to guide them in the way they approach history. So uh, thanks very much to Juan, to Mara, and all the people at uh, at Facing History. Sub China definitely supports the great work that you're doing. Rana, perhaps we could begin with the basic nomenclature. There are so many terms out there when we speak of this history. The rape of Nanjing, the Nanjing massacre, Nanjing atrocities. Are these actually interchangeable or are there specific connotations, different emphases or different degrees of outrage? Jeremy, the terms are somewhat varied, but they basically refer to the same set of events. The term Nanking, which some of your listeners may have heard, uh, comes really from the way in which Chinese names were Romanized, uh, put into English language in the early 20th century. But I don't think we should let the naming confuse us in terms of understanding the importance of the events themselves. And over those, there is, I think, a shared degree of understanding about what actually happened. What we're talking about with the Nanjing Massacre, let's use that term, is the killing of an extremely large number of civilians, as well as some former soldiers, in the then nationalist Chinese capital, a city now known as Nanjing, uh, in December to January 1937 to 38. It happened very early on in the uh, in the Sino-Japanese War, the uh, war between China and Japan that broke out in the summer of 1937 that would eventually become part of World War II in Asia. And it's regarded as one of the great acts of mass violence, one of the horrific atrocities that marked that particular war very early on in the course of that particular conflict. Rhonda, before we get into the actual chronology of the the uh, six weeks in, in Nanjing, let's let's establish a base chronology of events that led up to uh, the Nanjing Massacre. We, we all uh, know that the hot war with Japan began in, in July with the Marco Polo Bridge incident just south of Beijing. Uh, so take us through the rest of 1937, uh, especially focusing on, on the Battle of Shanghai. That's right, Kaiser. Essentially, in July of 1937, simmering tensions between Japanese nationalism, which had been rising in that particular country, particularly as it abandoned democracy, and rising Chinese nationalism on the mainland, where the government of Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalist party, or Kuomintang, as uh, uh, some people may have seen it written, um, came to a head. It was a small clash in July of 1937 that saw locally garrisoned Chinese and Japanese soldiers just outside the city of Beijing, then known as Beiping as it happened, fight with each other and essentially escalate a conflict that pretty much went out of control within just a few days and weeks. So within a few weeks, the war had moved from North China and Beijing and that area to actually spreading to Shanghai, China's biggest, most international, most cosmopolitan city. The second front was opened there by the Chinese government, essentially to try and draw in more Japanese troops, but also to show the world what was happening to China in terms of the invasion by Japan. And Shanghai was a crucial battle. It was somewhere which the Japanese Imperial Army thought they were actually going to conquer very quickly. They had believed their own propaganda that China was purely a weak, backward country with a military that really wasn't up to much. But Chiang Kai-shek, the Chinese nationalist leader, sent in battalion after battalion of his best trained troops. And they dug trenches, they took up positions, which meant that essentially for months from August 
to November of 1937, there were pitched battles throughout the city of Shanghai. Now, it caused huge amounts of disruption and despair. Uh, we're talking about um, refugee flight within the city, uh, systems of sewage and organization by the bureaucracy being broken up very quickly under the weight of bombing. Uh, really a huge amount of hu human tragedy. But the Chinese did manage to hold out for three months before finally having to withdraw their troops from Shanghai with the loss of many hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And that set the scene. It angered the Japanese army that they had been forced to really put up a major fight when they thought they would win easily. And that set some of the scene for the horrific acts that would follow in December of 1937. What do we know, Rana, about who gave the actual orders to troops to begin the slaughter in, in Nanjing? Uh, the general of the Shanghai Expeditionary Force was General Iwani Matsui who was sentenced to hang by the War Crimes Tribunal after the war. Uh, but accounts seem to blame a prince of the imperial family, Prince Osaka, for giving the actual order to kill all captives. And he was immune from prosecution as a member of the imperial family. Uh, what do you know about who actually gave the orders? Who pressed the button? Well, you're right to mention those two commanders, Prince Asaka and General Matsue Iwane, because they stand very central to any apportionment of blame for the horrors of Nanjing. I think one thing we have to say is that we do not absolutely know the chain of causation that caused this particular atrocity to happen. And we may not actually do so, even if we have more documentation, and that's always difficult to, uh, to, to, to come by. The reason I say that is this. It's now, I think, well understood that in military situations, particularly when a besieged city has just been captured, when uh, armed forces enter a city full of civilians, that often what happens is not the direct result of a specific order. Now, it's fair to say that the Japanese army over the course of World War II in China issued a whole variety of very brutal, very savage orders as to what was to be done to the local population. Later in the in the war, there was the so-called three-all uh, order by the Japanese army in rural China, which was to burn all, destroy all, kill all. Now, in Nanjing, I think we are clear that it was made very evident to the Japanese soldiers that they were going to be given free reign. They were going to be given license to do what they wanted. Now, one thing we know is that these troops were angry. They were not very well trained. They were not by any means the best troops that the Japanese Imperial Army had to offer. And as a result, when they were let off the leash, they unleashed this immense chain of violence, this immensely brutal experience that the civilians were forced to suffer. I think that it's probably reasonable to say that a kind of vacuum of command that was created by Matsue Iwane and by Prince Asaka allowed that to happen. And that's probably a more useful way to think about it rather than trying to look for very specific orders on bits of paper. Hmm. Well, we'll get into some of the other underlying causes of this in a little bit. But first, you said something very interesting, which is that these were not particularly well-trained troops. I think we're probably all used to thinking of the Japanese Imperial Army as, as very disciplined and very well-trained indeed. Uh, who were these? Were the Guangdong troops? Were they troops that had already been stationed for many years in, in China in the Northeast? Or were, were, had they come directly from Japan? Or where, who, who were the, the soldiers fighting in Nanjing? So it's very important to make that point that the legend that has perhaps grown up retrospectively of Japanese troops being, you know, essentially modern samurai warriors who were immensely well trained, who were kind of disciplined machine. Actually, in a sense, the horror of Nanjing points out that this couldn't really have been remotely true. 
genuinely well-trained soldiers, soldiers who had been trained in the laws of war, understanding what was appropriate in battle and what was appropriate with civilians, would never have committed the sort of atrocities that we're, we're talking about. So instead, we have to understand the Japanese army was made up of a lot of very different groups and different sections. For instance, Troops who were brought in from Japan's far north um, areas like uh, Tohoku, Hokkaido and so forth were often actually attacked and mocked even within the training system of Japan's army itself. They were mm. regarded as provincials, as kind of, you know, sort of hayseeds from the, the backwaters. The yokels. The yokels, exactly. So when we think about the Central China Expeditionary Army, the Japanese troops who actually made it to Nanjing... What we know, and again, you know, the, the fullest of information isn't always available because of the nature of people wanting to uh, to cover up after the, the event, is a sense of perhaps many of the soldiers being actually older than you might think, not necessarily youngest, youngest and uh, best trained. Many of them, of course, conscripted rather than being volunteers. That, that's a very important factor. And clearly many of them being people who were very frustrated because they had perhaps believed the ideology, the brainwashing that had been put into them through military training, that China would essentially fall very quickly before the might of the Japanese army, and then becoming increasingly angered and resentful because the actually very impressive fight back by the, the Chinese troops didn't measure up to that propaganda at all. So, so Rana, let's, let's talk more, let's, let's dig in a little deeper about why it happened, why this uh, what some people have believed to have been a very disciplined Japanese army actually displays such incredible savagery. Uh, so you've just talked about, and you've said this in your book, and other historians that I've read, for example, Jonathan Spence, uh, have said much the same thing, that it was this frustration, this expectation of a quick victory at Shanghai. As you as you say, you know, they had been brainwashed to believe that this uh, Chinese army would just fold like a house of cards. Uh, it ended up, of course, being quite long, quite drawn out, and very costly in Shanghai. Uh, uh, you quote some of the others though, on this subject, including the then U.S. Ambassador Nelson T. Johnson. And I'm going to read that right here. He said, The actions of the Japanese on the ground suggested they intended to make China a purely Japanese sphere of influence. And you quote Johnson as saying, I am even convinced that the actions of Japanese soldiers at Nanking were partly motivated by a desire to convince the Chinese that they must not depend on white intervention, which is interesting because, you know, as you say, Shanghai was opened as another front precisely for the opposite reason to to draw the West in. So there's that. Uh, I've also gotten into this debate before, and maybe uh, some have suggested that, that there were... Uh, well, let's, let's call them cultural variables. Uh, and it mostly comes down to this question. So can the rape of Nanjing be understood without invoking Japanese culture, uh, by which is meant things like, you know, Bushido, you, you're, you're talking about the, this idea of them as this samurai race. Uh, but many people seem to believe that there was something about the cruelty that was particularly Japanese, that it, it came out of not indoctrination about China as being weak, but as the Chinese as subhuman. Is there something that requires us to kind of delve into these psychocultural explanations or can we just ignore this, this whole potential essentialism and, and ignore the whole Japanese psyche question? Well, first of all, I should say very clearly that I don't think there is any meaningful way that we can say there is something specifically Japanese about this sort of savagery. Anything that any more than there is anything specifically German about Nazism or specifically Russian about the nature of the gulag. Human beings across all societies in all places committed tremendous crimes and tremendous atrocities. They've also, of course, done tremendous good. And I think the best counter argument to any um, idea that there is a Japanese cultural specificity is to look at post-war Japan, which became what it is today, a liberal, pluralist, 
internationally highly cooperative society, or indeed post-war Germany, which has been very much the same. So I think that's a sign that basically people use ideology, they use culture, but these are not fixed quantities. They are very malleable, and they can certainly be changed and improved. Now, that said, one factor that does need to be brought into mind when discussing why Nanjing happened, aside from the question of the specifics of whether the military who were there on that occasion had you know, felt themselves to be frustrated and worn down, is the wider ideological context of pre-war Japan. And there, I think it's fair to say that one big idea was spread increasingly throughout society, not just in the army, mm-hmm. but in the wider society and in politics. And that was the idea of race. Uh. It came through the idea that there were gradations of racial and cultural inferiority and superiority. Now, these ideas were not specifically Japanese. They drew actually very much from Western ideas, colonial and imperialist ideas that had come from Britain, from France, ideas like social Darwinism, which was hugely influential in early 20th century East Asia, Japan and China, but of course had come originally from the West. Right. Now, Japan, Japan managed to actually reformulate this into one particular version that did emanate from thinkers in Tokyo, you might say, in Kyoto as well, actually. And that's the idea of what was called Pan-Asianism. Mm-hmm. And Pan-Asianism is worth thinking about in that context. So Pan-Asianism in uh, Japanese and Dai-Asianism in, uh, in, in, in Chinese, mm-hmm. because it is quite specific to Japan's circumstances. It, it was rather different from Western imperial thinking, because it did argue that there was a place, an important place for Chinese, Koreans, and other Asians in the Asia region, and that their destiny was to be liberated, as the Japanese put it, from Western imperialism. But at the same time, they were supposed to recognize Japanese leadership. In other words, they were all Asians together. It was a kind of brotherhood. I have to say this is a very masculine sort of discourse, so much more brotherhood than sisterhood. Mm. But Japan was going to be the leader. A metaphor that was often used by Japanese thinkers at the time was the idea of Japan as the smaller, younger, but smarter brother who was leading the bigger, more clumsy and obese brother, uh, China, who had once been great, but now let himself go to seed out of the clutches of Western imperialism and giving him a sort of tough love that would bring him back to his rightful status in the in the region. And that was the basis on which the Japanese always claimed, clearly very self-servingly, that they were really trying to liberate China rather than invade it when they launched a war against the country, an argument which, of course, Chinese nationalists and communists absolutely refused to accept. So they were Michael Corleone to China's Fredo, then, you were saying? Um, I would say that the the, the, <laughs> the, the godfather metaphors may be the well... Perhaps, perhaps we should think instead about the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the journey to the West, the great classic Chinese novel, and the idea perhaps with the uh, Japanese being Tripitaka the monk who was going to lead people to the uh, the promised uh, land and maybe China being Pigsy the uh, uh, incarnation of uh, of human desires uh, which um, held him back. Uh, Rana do you <laughs> see any resonances with that kind of thinking in Xi Jinping's China some of the sort of leadership role in in Asia that uh, Xi's government seems to be wanting uh, does that have any resonance or not is that uh, is that no I, I I don't think that's the resonance. I think that China's current argument about leadership in Asia has been very explicitly and rhetorically based on the idea that it's supposed to be a partnership of equals and of countries that will engage with each other on an equal basis. Now, you might well say 
that China is saying this while actually trying to engineer a much more powerful position for itself in the region. But that, I think, is very different, very different from what the Japanese were doing before World War II, which was claiming an ideology that actually put them explicitly in the driving seat. Um, that is not what I, I see going on in, in, in China at the moment, or indeed in Japan, where uh, Prime Minister Abe has been very keen on arguing that Japan should take a new leading role in the, uh, in the, in the region. But again, very much on the idea that it will be as part of a cooperative uh, partnership. I have to say that I think that the experience of World War II has essentially bottomed out the market for dominating dominant ideologies that seek to try and argue that one particular nation is superior to any other so imperialism is so yesterday (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. At least we hope it's even the day before yesterday. And yeah, it's stay well, that indeed. Way. well um, to get back to the Nanjing massacre itself, the numbers, we sort of, I think, hinted at it, but we didn't really cover it. Unless you believe denialists on Japan's far right, the numbers are quite staggering. But there's not a lot of agreement about what exactly they are. I mean, how do you as a historian get at the numbers of killings and rapes? And, you know, what is the official Japanese number, if there is one? How does it differ from China's? Um, I don't think it's fair to say that there's any such thing as an official Japanese number, because most governments in most places don't provide official numbers people for... People they kill. Um, atrocities and statement of... <laughs> well, uh, but people they kill already. I mean, I think if you if you asked, a, you know, a British um, government official, so how many people exactly did the British wipe out during the Mau Mau uprising or during the Malaya emergency? You might get a slightly kind of uh, yellow look right. and a quick change of, uh, of subject. I think maybe Jeremy's getting at something more like six million Jews killed in the genocide or 20 million Russians who died or 20 million yeah. Chinese killed in the Taiping Rebellion. Sort of, you know, what historians... Yeah. a rule of thumb on that on. sort. Absolutely. What are Japanese schoolchildren like? Indeed. Okay, so let's take the two separate uh, separate questions one at, uh, one at a time. Um, the first one is about what historians um, do to try and work out what the, you know, the numbers question might, uh, might put forward. I think any honest historian will start by saying that we don't have an absolute cut and dried number. And one of the reasons for that, and this makes it different from something like, say, the horrific planned genocide of the Holocaust, which, of course, has become perhaps the the number that many people who deal with mass violence have become most familiar with, and the killing of, of, of six million, which, you know, is, 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 is a necessary and you might almost say iconic number. The compiling of that number was aided in part by the bloodless, cold, rational uh, well, rational is not the right word, but you know what I mean? The bloodless, cold bureaucratism of Nazi Germany, which actually, of course, put together a whole variety of documents, which were then used by historians later to come down to the numbers that we have today. Right. That, of course, is not what happened in Nanjing. Nanjing was an outburst of immense ferocious violence that, you know, it was many things, but it was not genocide. It was not a planned act by the Japanese army deliberately to kill Chinese people as a kind of uh, ethnic policy. Nor was it, of course, put down there on the grounds that um, there would be a specific number or a specific set of numbers that would be kept statistically. And that's one of the reasons, just in terms of the evidence, why it's harder to put an exact number on what goes on there. That said... So it's basically a massive My Lai massacre rather than a Holocaust that was sort of industrially planned. I mean, is that... Oh, I mean, yeah, I think I think that's, that's absolutely evident. I mean, clearly, I, I don't think anyone would claim that this was pre-planned in a, a sort of bureaucratic way by the Japanese state in the way that the Nazi state clearly 
planned and moved towards the Holocaust. Particularly, there's there's no Wannsee conference, if that's what we're uh, we're talking about there in terms of the comparison with the Nazi uh, example. And even at Wannsee, as uh, many listeners will know, of course, one has to extrapolate certain things that we know about the nature of the Nazi regime to understand the, co- the, the chain of causation. So Nanjing is an act of immense, brutal wartime violence, inexcusable, and certainly very, very real, but it's not the same thing as the, as the, as the Nazi genocide. So going back to the question of how we account for it, I'd say to you that most of the historians, and this is not my specific research area, I should, should add, but the historians who have written about the question of the killings themselves have worked out a variety of ways of looking at what data was kept, including, of course, witnesses, by, um, many of whom were, were the, the small number of foreigners who remained in Nanjing at that time, extrapolating what the pre-war population had been and trying to work out how many would have remained at that time, and come up with figures that sit certainly in the many, many tens of thousands into six figures, quite possibly. It is, of course, necessary to point out that an absolutely exact to-the-number figure has not been obtained and probably will not be obtained. But I think it's also perhaps problematic to get so distracted by the question of numbers, which is something that the so-called denialists, uh, people who want to argue that there was never any massacre at all, like to do, that it distracts from what I think any responsible historian would have to start with, the killing of huge numbers of civilians in an atrocity by the Imperial Japanese Army in Nanjing during those weeks. And we must not step away from that central um, that central fact. Very well said. And what about the other question that Jeremy asked about in Japanese historiography? Yes, that's right. So, okay, well, there's two separate things there. One is about school children and textbooks. Japanese high school textbooks on history, and again, I tend to work on China, so I can't speak as an expert on Japanese education um, uh, as, a, as a subject. From what I know of it, there are basically textbooks used that cover the whole of Japanese history from a very early period all the way up to you know World War II and beyond. And therefore, the amount of time that's given to the World War II period in general is generally very short. There are different versions of Japan's war crimes in in China in different textbooks. There are six or seven different authorized uh-huh. versions. The ones that are tended to cause the most outrage for good reason that tend to skate over these events, I think it's fair to say, are actually used by only a very small proportion of Japanese high schools. The ones that are used in 90%, 95%, I think, plus actually, tend to mention in some detail a whole variety of Japanese war crimes that took place. And uh, this is not surprising in a sense, because one of the great forces that really shaped the way this is perceived in post-war Japan, and this is something that should be, I think, understood and acknowledged more in China, is the left-wing Teachers' Union and the action of the many leftist and progressive uh, academics and journalists in Japan who were very insistent on making sure that Japan's war record would not be brushed over but be brought into uh, public discussion. In terms of historiography, again, it's very important to say that in the academy, in universities and in Japanese scholarship, there is huge amounts of very open, very frank discussion of Japan's war crimes. I would say that Japanese scholars and Japanese journalists have been at the forefront of bringing the horror of what happened in Nanjing to public attention. And in fact, it's worth noting that in the early 1970s, long before the West and long before the Chinese brought the Nanjing massacre back to public discussion, it was a Japanese journalist, Honda Katsuchi, who went to China, went to Nanjing, which wasn't easy to do in the early 70s, 
interviewed survivors of the massacre there and published his findings in the Asahi Shimbun, one of the major newspapers then as now in Japan, forcing the Japanese public to engage with the subject for the uh, for the first time. So I think, you know, there's no question that the Japanese public sphere is much, much wider ranging than it's sometimes characterized as being in China in terms of the discussion of this subject. Uh, so, Rana, that makes me think uh, a little bit that... Um the way you're portraying it, it's almost as though you, when we talk about Japanese textbooks and people in China get very outraged, it's almost like Western journalists reading the English version of the Global Times and getting out really outraged that China, <laughs> you know, the Chinese government is saying something, which it, you know, sort of is, but it, it's not an official Chinese government statement. It's you know, it represents a real current of Chinese thought, but it's not the mainstream thinking. I mean, is that a, a fair comparison? I think what I mean, I think you've put your finger on something very important. And perhaps let's let me state this explicitly, if I may. In both China and Japan, there is a spectrum of thinking about the question of what not just Nanjing, but Japanese war crimes in China actually met. And the word character uh, meant, sorry, uh, let me say that again. Okay. I think you put your finger on something very important there. Uh, it's really about the fact that in both China and Japan, understanding of the war crimes, not just Nanjing, although that's a very important one, but many others committed by Japan during World War II, mm-hmm. are understood in a, in a spectrum of interpretations. In China, I think it is fair to say that broadly speaking, the atmosphere has become more shaped by the idea of China becoming a victim during World War II and and, and shaped by a very understandable anger at Japanese actions during that period. And I think, you know, emotionally, that is both understandable and very, very much, you know, to be expected. I, I don't think that's unreasonable. But there is also, I think, an understanding that, you know, this is a product of a particular Japan. Sometimes the kind of headline rhetoric in newspapers makes it seem as if Chinese people all think that Japan's government today is basically a reincarnation of the imperial government of, of, the, of right, the 1930s right. and 40s and that Japan's about to launch a new Pearl Harbor. I think when, you know, quizzed, uh, whether you're talking to PLA, People's Liberation Army officers or to educators and professors, they will say that in practice they know, of course, that the two are very different. In the case of Japan, I think it's also worth briefly characterizing what the nuance is there. I would say that the mainstream, which stretches from the liberal wing of thought in Japan, which is pretty wide, to what you might call the mainstream conservatives. There is no denial that Japan's war crimes in China during those years of the 30s and 40s were shameful. They were a source of deep dishonor and shame to Japan and must never be allowed to to happen again. Where I think there is an area that creates a sort of taint in the public culture in, in Japan, and I think this is worth Japan itself having a good long hard look at is those examples of uh, whether it's published or institutional opinions that seem to want to try and whitewash or lessen what happened in those years. So this would include, for instance, those sort of graphic novels which sell hundreds of thousands of copies, which, you know, sell to school kids um, and indeed to some adults, I guess, arguing that Japan's mission in Asia was in fact one to liberate um, uh, Asia rather than invade uh, China during World War II. Or some of the exhibits in the Yushukan, the museum 
museum attached to the famous Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo, which I visited just in um, January of this year, and uh, which uh, argues, at least on one of its panels, that the real cause of the outbreak of World War II in Asia was, and I quote, Kyosanto no Tero, Communist Party terrorism. <laughs> so, you know, I think um, this is not an interpretation that any mainstream Japanese historian, let alone Chinese or Western, would have as to why World War II broke out in, in China. Now, I'm not claiming that that museum, which is privately owned anyway, is the mainstream of historical thinking in Japan on this question. It clearly isn't. But I think that it's important that elements of the public sphere like that are called out more explicitly and made to account for why they choose to put that into the public sphere. And by doing so, Japan, I think, then moves into a better position to advocate what it wants to do, which is to be a thought leader and a political leader in Asia today. It's hard for us, though, to get the measure of the scale or the, the extent of Nanjing Massacre denialism or, or generally of, of apology for, for Japanese wartime atrocity. Uh, does it ebb and flow with the fortunes of the far right in Japan? Or are, are you aware... Uh, of any, uh, for example, commemoration happening right now for the 80th anniversary of the Nanjing Massacre. Uh, give us give us a, a way to think about the prevalence of this far-right thinking in, in Japanese society today. Yeah, I'll give you a rather uncomfortable um, uh, comparison, if I may, Kaiser, bearing in mind that you're currently in the northern part of the south of the United <laughs> States. I think you can see yeah. where I'm going to... You can see where I'm going to go with yes. this, right? I am a deep admirer of the United States, a place where I've studied in the past, which I visit frequently, and which I continue to think is a force overall for good in the wider global order. However, what has been happening in terms of the way in which American history has been remembered, commemorated, and used in very recent months, and we're talking here, I think, about the very negative history of the American Civil War being taken up in the early 21st century, the year 2017, as a source of pride, as a very, very worrying historical development that I think actually taints the wider strain, uh, strains and strands of the understanding of American history. Hmm. So maybe for American listeners, I can say, you know, possibly you're a great Confederacy uh, fan, in which case you won't want to hear what I have to say. But I would say that level of alternative interpretation on a very negative way of a mainstream historical position is what we're talking about here. Nobody, I would think, would say that the, you know, the, the Confederacy was great view of American history is the mainstream in the US. On the other hand, you couldn't argue that it's simply a trivial and irrelevant addition to a much wider mainstream. It clearly is there in the culture. So that's the way perhaps that I would characterize what you might call the hard conservative, hard right Japanese interpretation of the war years. It's not so small that it's invisible or irrelevant. I wish that it were, but it's not. But it's not the mainstream either. So the occasional Yasukuni shrine visit by a Japanese prime minister would be maybe akin to Donald Trump saying, there were some very fine people on both sides in Charlottesville. I think that the comparison there is quite apt. And also in another in other way, it's, it's an apt comparison. President Trump has so far being fairly careful, those are words you didn't think you'd ever hear anyone using, (laughs) President Trump being careful, not specifically to endorse the Confederacy, as far as I I know. In the same way, no Japanese prime minister, certainly not Mr. Abe, would argue that Japan's World War II record was a righteous cause. There are politicians who do that, but not prime ministers. But it's possible, particularly when you're on the right wing in both American 
and Japanese politics to sort of shade along at the edges of that without actually crossing yeah. over. Dog whistling. The dog whistling, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's a, an insult to dogs, of whom I'm, I'm very, uh, very, very fond of. You, the, you are the, so the, very the, English, Ron. <laughs> I was about to say, you know, p- political correctness when it comes to Labradors is what I say. I, I'm not going to have any, uh, no libeling of Labradors on this podcast is what I, what I say. But yeah, sending out a signal to people who are just that, you know, many paces across the line and saying, you know what? I'm not quite there with you, but I know what you mean. That's the uncomfortable part. That's what we have to try and call out. Let, let's um, shift gear slightly um, and talk about one, uh, if we can talk about Nazis, bloodless and cold bureaucrat, uh, a Nazi party member who proved to be quite a humanitarian in wartime China. Tell us about John Rabe, the good German of Nanjing, and his role in saving civilians during the weeks of the Nanjing massacre. The John Rabe story is one of the very few, very few heartening stories that comes from the horrors of the Nanjing massacre. And uh, it's been taken up in recent years as an example of how even in the midst of, you know, the most brutal killings, real human empathy can emerge. And as you say, Jeremy, there's an irony about the fact the man who's at the heart of it was actually a member, a card-carrying member of the Nazi party. So let me just very briefly explain who he was and then what he did. John Rabe was a German businessman. He was the head of the Siemens Corporation, still exists today, of course, uh, the Siemens Corporation, and uh, lived in Nanjing in the 1930s because, of course, that was then the Chinese capital, and therefore it was also a place that was important for business connections. And he had joined the Nazi party. This was actually something that happened quite frequently with many Germans after the Nazi takeover in 19. 19- 33. Many joined because they were ideologically anti-Semites or xenophobic or anti-Bolshevik. Some, and I suspect that Rabe himself was like this, joined for kind of pragmatic, almost you know, selfish reasons. They thought they would get ahead in business. It would, you know, um, basically help them uh, do their um, day-to-day business if they were party members. Like Republicans stumping for Trump, really. Or Roy Moore. Uh, I think I will leave it to the two of you to decide. Uh, when, I think, I think, I think. Who, who is it? Is it Godwin's law that when you start con- uh, comparing politicians to the Nazis, you may be uh, heading down a very slippery slope? When you start comparing co- uh, politicians to Trump, <laughs> right? But there's been a moratorium on Godwin's law, though. So. He, he was what he was. He was what he was. Um, so he did join the Nazi Party. He was not, I think, it's fair to say, in any way um, ideologically. Um, oriented towards the Nazis, but he did join. They have to say that. Um, he also, um, uh, I think, joined when he was out in, or you know, he spent most of that period of his career out in China. So I think he wasn't in Germany when you know the atrocities of of the Nazi period started really to uh, to, to bite home, and therefore perhaps had a limited understanding of what the Nazis were actually doing. So a gentle sellout rather than a <laughs> collaborationist. Uh, I think I think in this particular case, someone who did it for business reasons, which I suspect in retrospect he probably would have highly, highly uh, regretted. But he's not remembered because of his Nazi Party membership. Let's remember he's remembered because of what he did in in Nanjing, and that is worth um, worth uh, recalling. In the initial days and weeks when it became clear that Nanjing was going to fall in December of 1937 to the Japanese invading army. Rabe was one of a very small group of foreigners, Germans, Americans um, uh, in particular, who got together to form what was called the International Safety Committee. Now, this or uh, and this was, was an organization that set up a zone 
within the city of Nanjing, in which they declared that if refugees, Chinese refugees, fled into it, then they would be regarded as being safe from any attack or assault by an invading Japanese army. And Rabe and his fellow foreigners worked incredibly hard, along with Chinese colleagues, I should say. I mean, the Chinese were involved in this too, to try and preserve the safety zone in Nanjing in the terrible days after 13th of December 1937, when the Central China Expeditionary Army of the Japanese Army was running riot in, uh, in Nanjing. Now, it's fair to say that the safety zone was not wholly successful in terms of being recognized by the Japanese army. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons we know so much about what happened in Nanjing is that several members of that committee, Rabe himself, but also American missionaries such as uh, Minnie Votrin, kept diaries, absolutely mm. harrowing diaries that are preserved now in uh, places like the Yale Divinity School and have been published in many cases too. I mean, they're, they're available for all to, all to read. And I've certainly used them in, in, in my research. Um, all of these diaries show day after day, endless killings, rapes, destruction of property, assaults on, on civilians. And Rabe was very much at the centre of desperately running around, I think driving around on some occasions too, trying to speak to Japanese commanders, trying to get them to calm their troops down, to stop the endless killings and rapes. Now, as we know, thousands upon thousands of victims in Nanjing did not escape the Japanese army's onslaught. But I think it's fair to say from what we can see from the diaries that they did save a significant number of lives. Some people were stashed away in places like the buildings of Jinling College, which is now part of Nanjing University, mm. and protected from the, the assault. In some cases, it does appear that the appearance of even a very small number of foreigners did provide some sort of protection to the Chinese. Some Japanese soldiers were reluctant to actually carry out murders or rapes directly before foreign eyes. And one other aspect was important. Because Nazi Germany was an ally of Japan. I mean, not in wartime, because of course, at that stage, the war in Asia had not been declared, but there was a, a pact between the countries. Rabe tried to use the fact that J uh, Germany and Japan were on good terms to pressure um, the issue a bit diplomatically and say that it is not right that an ally of Nazi Germany, ironically enough, should be committing this sort of appalling and atrocious act. Rabe even wrote to Hitler to tell him what was going on. There is no record of a reply, but in retrospect, I think we know what Rabe clearly was perhaps a little naive to think that um, Adolf Hitler was rather the last man who I think would be likely to intervene on behalf of Chinese civilians in this particular case. But he did try. Uh, Rabe did try. I can't remember where I read this, but uh, I, I, I seem to recall that his letter to Hitler ended up getting him in a bit of trouble. That's right. Uh, that he was actually, uh, the, the SS prevented that, that letter from, from actually being received by the Fuhrer. And so, I, believe, yeah. I believe that's right. I mean, again, it points back to the fact we were discussing Rabe's character earlier. And I think it's fair to say that in some ways he was naive. I think that's probably the right way to use. But in a sense that naivety may have been a blessing because... Anyone who genuinely believed that his duty was to save civilians who were being murdered in an atrocity can't be thought of as a dyed-in-the-wool ideological Nazi, even if he was a member of the Nazi party. And clearly his membership in the first place was perhaps a piece of political naivety that, on reflection, he might himself have, have, have very much regretted. John Robbie has been the subject of films, of course, and uh, of books. I uh, would encourage people who are interested in his story to check those out. Uh, Rana, I want to shift the conversation now back to China uh, mm. and how the Nanjing Massacre is actually thought about, how it's talked about in in China. 
Uh, how much room is there for debate right now about the actual event in China? Uh, where are the third rails? And, and at what point do you actually stand accused of historical nihilism uh, if you cross a particular line? And I imagine you must have come under some pressures, and maybe you could talk about those, when you were doing your own research on the Nanjing Massacre. Good questions, good questions. Uh, so you use that phrase, uh, which is uh, historical <laughs> nihilism, which I think may actually now be an offense under the uh, Chinese constitution as uh, redrafted in the last few weeks following the, the 19th Party Congress. Although I think actually slander against uh, great leaders of the Chinese Communist Party are much more likely to uh, lead to um, historians or indeed possibly broadcasters and journalists, Kaiser, uh, being hauled in for a little bit of um, <laughs> yeah. peeping, self-criticism on that uh, on that part. Wouldn't be the first time. Now, and probably not the last either. One thing to say clearly, which is as someone who works a great deal with very distinguished, very impressive historians who do, you know, miles of really impressive uh, data-driven research in China today, there is a lot of very serious research going on on this period, um, World War II in general, and Nanjing in particular, in China itself. And without that, we Westerners would be a bit stuck, I think, because it's provided a lot of data that we just didn't have before. And that's really important to note. I have never been, I will say this, you know, I've never been pressured on this or any other subject in terms of saying you should look more at this or not look so much at that. I have to say the subject on which I've received the most kind of puzzled comments in terms of my uh, work on World War II in China is actually a subject which is somewhat taboo um, in China itself, and it's not unrelated to Nanjing, which is the subject of Chinese collaboration with Japan during the war, particularly the regime oh, wow. of Wang Jingwei, the former nationalist second-in-command to Sun Yat-sen, the great revolutionary leader of the 10s and 20s. And quite a lot of my own book on uh, World War II in China actually goes into the mindset of the collaborators with the uh, uh, with the Japanese and ask what on earth were they were they thinking so we should remember that when Wang Jingwei and his collaborationist government was set up in March 1940 in Nanjing it was only a year and a half after the horrific massacres in Nanjing which they certainly knew about of course the argument that the uh, the Wang Jingwei people would have used was that by setting up an agreement with the Japanese they would prevent such a massacre from ever happening again and to be fair there was no um, uh, parallel to that kind of savagery during the period that they were actually in charge. So the point is that you have to look at what they said in their own terms. And I certainly received a certain number of, uh, how can I put it, raised eyebrows uh, from um, compadres in the uh, Chinese historical field and even beyond that for concentrating on this subject so much in my book. But nobody ever told me you shouldn't have put it in or you shouldn't have uh, have discussed it. It's funny, it actually came up in conversation uh, with an author that we interviewed last week uh, oh, yeah? for the show that just ran. Uh, he spoke to you for the, for the, I believe he spoke to you, Scott Tong, oh, okay. who just published a sort of family memoir. As it turns out, one of his, his, his maternal grandfather was actually uh, worked for the Wang Jingwei government. And we, we talked about you, we talked about your book, and we talked about sort of the revisitation of the topic of collaboration. It was, it was very interesting. Okay, well, I'll have to check out that edition of the podcast, which I haven't heard yet, but I would love to uh, to see what Scott had to uh, had to say. So let's get back to the question of, of, of interference, because I think it's a really important um, one. I think one of the reasons that I have not had anyone come up to me from the Chinese side, whether it's official or historical or otherwise, to say, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, is actually something that's rather specific to the data that we have about Nanjing, which I think both makes it more credible, but also uh, in terms of a historical subject, but also ironically makes it easier to write about. 
a very large part of the evidence that gives us the who, where, what and detail comes from foreigners. And that's unusual in terms of China's World War II history. If we're talking about something like, say, the Battle of Taizhuang, you know, for those who know about China's World War II, major battle in north, uh, northern China in Shandong in April 1938. I mention it just because it's something where basically all the evidence is in Chinese or Japanese from either side. It's not something that foreigners had much in, involved with, involvement with other than as, you know, observers from outside. Not so with the Nanjing Massacre. There we have, you know, these diaries, records um, in German, in English and other languages, uh, well, German and English, I'd say, um, which, you know, give this brutal account, some of which, as I say, are in my book and many other books. And the point is that these are not data sources which are under the control or command of anyone in China. You know, they sit in places like the Yale Divinity Library waiting to be to be used. In addition, There are materials that come from the Chinese side. I mean, the diary of Cheng Ruifang, a uh, um, uh, older Chinese woman who was involved in uh, medical te- uh, uh, medical work, um, one of the best Chinese diaries we have of the events. And one of the reasons, again, it's so credible is that it, she worked with Minnie Votran, one of the missionary teachers, and it both backs up a huge amount of what the Americans had to say, but also has its own takes on what happened, which are very, very Chinese. They, she writes various things that Chinese people would write that, I don't think a foreigner ever would have done. So I think that that is one of the reasons that this particular subject almost stands outside many of the pressures that you get on sensitive subjects of Chinese modern history, because so much mm. of the evidence is not actually from the Chinese side. And as I say, ironically, that actually makes it more credible, because I find it hard to believe that a 50-something-year-old American missionary woman would have spent her time in the middle of those events deliberately making up an entire diary of atrocity just to get at the Japanese for, for no good reason. <laughs> I mean, you can you can imagine such a scenario. No doubt, there are deniers who put it forward, but it, it rather stretches the credibility, the credulity of most historians. I think. <clears throat> yeah, uh, fair enough, <laughs> Rana. Fair enough, um, Rana. Last time we spoke to you uh, for the podcast, you were in Beijing for the parade to commemorate the end of the war and the signing of the armistice. Um, Do, do you know, are there going to be events, uh, commemorative events in China uh, related to the Nanjing Massacre? For sure. Yes, absolutely. The big one, actually, I was put in mind of it because I was actually in Nanjing just last um, Wednesday. In fact, uh, I, I, I hesitate to say this uh, to the hosts of possibly the world's best regarded or one of the world's very best regarded China podcasts. But <laughs> TM. Well, I have my own uh, little podcast enterprise I will now reveal to you uh, exclusively. Um going on next spring with a little outfit called the BBC. Uh, you won't have heard of them. They're a kind of little cockamamie outfit out there on an island of the north. startup <laughs> in in a, in a small country noted for its uh, schools and soccer teams and tourism. <laughs> and its decision to pretend that it's not actually off the coast of Europe, but right. floating <laughs> floating somewhere else. All of that. I'm working with BBC Radio to, very actually, I'm really excited to do uh, a new series, which is going to be called see what we did here, Chinese characters, uh, Chinese ah. history in 20 lives from uh, very earliest times to the, uh, the, the, the modern era. And that'll go out um, on BBC Radio in the UK and World Service in uh, March, April of next year. Also be available on podcast. As, Marvelous. On, or, or, as I say, so I hope all cynical listeners will tune in for that as well or download. But the reason that I mention it here, apart from blatant advertising, is that 
I was in Nanjing, in fact, just uh, last Wednesday, about a week ago as we speak on this podcast, um, to just do a quick bit of this, you know, reporting from the front of the immensely impressive, very moving, very wrenching memorial to the massacre. And, you know, many of your listeners who've been to Nanjing will know what I'm talking about. But if you haven't been, do go if you go to, to Nanjing. It's it's a very impressive uh, piece of, uh, uh, of, of um, architectural and historical work that goes on there. Now, I couldn't actually go inside. And the reason is that the whole place has been shut down for, I think, about two weeks or so for a refurbishment and preparation because none other than President Xi Jinping is going to be there on the 13th, uh, just next week as we speak, uh. giving a very, very widely publicized national address. We don't yet know as of this moment of speaking what he's going to say. I'm sure he'll talk about history. I'm sure he'll talk about reconciliation. I'm sure he'll talk about what it means to the Chinese. I, for one, will be taking quite significant notes on what he has to say, because I think this is going to be a major speech. And I'm sure it'll be very, very widely covered in uh, Chinese media. Let's hope it gets wider coverage in the, the world beyond China as well. Well, I think it'll be, it'll be fortuitous that we're releasing this podcast on that very day. And so we'll, we'll make sure to sort of double up on coverage. Great. Rana, is there, to your mind, a good template for how nations or governments or people should process, should learn from, should remember, and, and yet in some very real sense move beyond traumatic episodes of inhuman violence like like the Nanjing Massacre. I mean, we as a species, we don't seem particularly good at this. It seems like something like this is is kind of doomed to be forever politicized by, by one or both sides for a very long time to come. Uh, what needs to happen and, and who can we look to uh, as, as good examples of how to process this? It's tough. And I have to say that it's becoming tougher. And I find this quite depressing as a historian, because the one area of the world which I thought had done this quite well, suddenly seems to be coming unraveled. And that's Europe. Uh, you know, a few years ago, we would have said that Europe had come to terms and come to peace with its wartime record. In particular, in Eastern Europe these days, where there is, you know, a considerable mm. amount of um, historical revisionism about the, the Nazi years I mean, in ways that, you know, I personally find extremely disturbing. I wonder quite whether those ghosts have been laid to rest. So I'll give you a more positive example. It's, it's a well-known one, but, you know, I, th I think it's one that bears discussion and it's not perfect. That's South Africa. South Africa did not suffer you know, one event of the scale and horror of the Nanjing Massacre under apartheid. But let's just say that massacres of a smaller but very, very significant and brutal nature were a very regular part of the way in which apartheid South Africa controlled its majority population. Uh, Sharpeville 1960 is one obvious example, but there are plenty others. And low-level violence just continuing to beat down and beat up the majority population of South Africa, very much a tactic of the regime. That's right. I have been really very impressed by the way, I mean, I visited you know, Cape Town and some areas around there a few years ago, in which there has been an ability by the new government, the, the democratic government of South Africa, not to cover over, not to say we're not going to talk about this, but to find a way both to bring the former minority dominant population into the dialogue, into the discourse, and have the truth and reconciliation process while also moving beyond it. I mean, you know, obviously there are scars from apartheid that still exist in South Africa today. But it's, I think it's fair to say that the many problems that bedevil South Africa today, and there are many, are not primarily products of race discourse in and of itself. Uh, and that is an amazing thing when you look at the South Africa of 25 to 30 years ago, where it seemed that, you know, a kind of 
civil war might be. Uh, Rana, I, I find that really fascinating, but it, it does prompt me to, uh, as a South African, it, it prompts me to yep. ask the question that um, we had a Truth and Re- Reconciliation uh, Commission. We have the Apartheid Museum, which is a very, very fine museum. We, mm-hmm. we have a lot of ways in which South Africans, we try to reconcile each other with our history. But right now we have an extremely corrupt government led by a kleptocrat. Um, uh, <laughs> and the uh, bottom, it's not even, you know, the bottom 30%. It's like the bottom 70% of the country are really, really suffering. So we sort of adopted a Swedish attitude towards recognizing our past. Uh, we were, you know, honest. We signed things that said that, everything was groovy, that we respected, everybody respected each other, Uh, we were honest, it was great, but right now if you compare South Africa and China, you know, both nations that had a key transition between 1989 and 1994, um, I don't know if South Africa is a model uh, if you want your people to eat. Well, well, two things to say about that. Number one is that, you know, models are just that. They cannot be reproduced because the circumstances of every single country are going to be very different. So a point of difference I might make, um, if I may use another historical example, which is very current as we speak in, in very late 2017, is Spain. Spain basically did something different. It agreed on a pact of silence in which the crimes of the Franco years would just not be discussed at all. So there was no Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Spain, and Spain democratized without ever having really discussed the nature of what had happened during the Franco years. I think that is one of the reasons why the Catalonia crisis that's going on right now has emerged, because Catalan identity Mm. was very heavily suppressed during that time. So... It's going to come back to haunt you if you don't deal with it, is what you're saying. I think, you know, dealing with these things and talking is important. And your question about South Africa's current government and about, you know, people having enough to eat, I think that's absolutely true. But that is a different question from the question of how you deal with crimes of the past. Because I think the one thing that nobody is saying, at least I'm not aware anyone saying, including uh, any any white politicians in South Africa, is that what they, people need to do is to go back to apartheid. I mean, that's that's that the one thing that is absolutely yes. completely off yeah, the table. Yeah, no, that's off the table. Well, uh, there no, there are about three hundred people uh, with a, a free republic of Aranyaland or something who do, but I think it's three hundred people. <laughs> Excellent, but they're not no, they're not relatives of yours. No, thankfully <laughs> not. Ron Emitter, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, stick around for a few more minutes and join us as we make some recommendations. Uh, and before we get to recommendations, I, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's free daily email newsletter to stay current on the. Most important news from China and follow SubChina on Twitter and on Facebook where the handle is SubChina News. If you like the Cynical Podcast, please do go and leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store. It really helps other people to discover the podcast. So thank you in advance. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you start us off? What do you have for this week? Okay, I'm, I'm going to be a bit lame and actually just re-recommend things that you guys have recommended before. And I know this oh, is you lame, actually listen but, to my recommendations. Uh, you know, okay. what can I do? We've recorded a lot of podcasts, and I'm out of things to recommend. And these things were good. So the first thing is a trilogy of spy novels by Adam Brooks, former BBC correspondent. Uh, it's the Night Heron, uh, Night Heron, 
Spy Games That's and right. the Spy's Daughter. Uh, they have uh, a lot of the stuff, uh, the action is set in Beijing, and it's one of the few uh, contemporary sort of thrillers you can read where the Beijing that is portrayed is pretty accurate. Uh, which is nice, and it's a gripping read. They are all, all three of them. And the other thing, Kaiser, that I have to um, kind of repeat your recommendation, I'm about uh, three quarters of the way through, is a book called Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire uh, by Kurt Anderson. (laughs) Glad you're enjoying that. Yeah. So um, anyway... What do you think? You, I, I mean, you, you liked it obviously enough to re-recommend it. Yes, so, no, no, uh, no, it's very good. It's very good. And it does confirm what I've always believed, which was America has been batshit crazy for hundreds of years. So why are we surprised? <laughs> why stop now? Right, right, right. Rana, what about you go next? What do you have for us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, just quickly touching on the topic that we've been dealing with. If people want to get an academic treatment, which talks not just about the history of the Nanjing Massacre, but the way it's been regarded in China and Japan. I would recommend the volume with the Does What It Says on the Tin title of The Nanjing Massacre in History and Historiography, edited by a great China and Japan historian Joshua Fogel of York University in Canada, published by the University of California Press in paperback, and well worth a few dollars of anyone's money if you want to get a sober... sane and objective treatment of some very controversial questions. And then that may not be, frankly, the most uplifting of reads in a sense, although it's an important one. So to lighten your day a little bit, um, a novel I've read recently, which I admired hugely. Changing um, topics from a massacre. Changing topics completely. Well, you know, we could spend our entire time, I think, reading very gloomy history, but occasionally one has to to switch to something else. Um, I'd recommend a wonderful uh, new novel. It's been out for a little while. You may have read it yourselves. Jennifer Egan's Manhattan Beach. Jennifer Uh, Egan won the Pulitzer Prize for her previous novel, uh, Visit from the Goon Squad. This is a much more conventional novel in terms of form, but actually it's absolutely sparkling in terms of dealing with issues of identity, immigration, parenthood, all in a fantastic story of the uh, fictionalized, but nonetheless, the first woman diver to serve in the US Navy during World War II and uh, a really wonderful read. So I would uh, certainly recommend that as a Christmas present for anyone who loves reading good novels. You know, there's a terrific long interview, uh, well, not an interview, but a long piece, a profile on Jennifer Egan in The New Yorker from a couple of months back, which focuses on this book, which she wrote longhand sitting out outside on, on her porch. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, uh, I, I love her. I love to visit from the goon squad. Could, so uh, I'll definitely. Good. Well, it, could I just add on onto that in that case for any listeners who happen to be nursing hangovers on 4th of January of next year, uh, my interview with Jennifer Egan on uh, the BBC free thinking podcast and uh, arts and ideas uh, podcast will be available at that point. So you can hear Jennifer and me having a bit of a chat about the novel too. Right. Rana, that's a very British comment. People nursing ha- hangovers on the 4th of January. In America, they give you t- until the second, and then you know back. What to can work. I say? I come well, you know, but basically, uh, <laughs> I, I come from a people who are known both for their cosmopolitanism and their alcoholism. So you know, it's a combination of the combination of the two. I suspect. My recommendation uh, is: I, I, I live in this marvelous town, Chapel Hill. And uh, one of the great pleasures of this is that we have this enormous public library uh, that has donations from, you know, the very, very academic folk who live in, in this town, you know, who live here and teach at 
one of the, the two universities, either Duke or at UNC, and they donate a lot of books. And there are a lot of excellent China books. I just picked up Empire of the Steps by Rene Grousset. It, this, is, this is just a fantastic book about Central Asian history that stretches from, God, you know, really from, from the Xiongnu and, and the Scythians all the way to, you know, the past the gunpowder age. It's, it's a, a, a marvelous, I mean, I had lent my copy out to somebody some, some time back and managed to, to, uh, to find this for what a buck. It's unbelievable on paperbacks or a buck. I also picked up uh, the May 4th movement by Zhou Zizong, uh, which is uh, just a seminal work uh, on, on the May 4th, on the most important intellectual movement of the 20th century in China. Uh, and, and quite a number of others that, that I, I prized uh, some in duplicate so that I can lend them with, without fear of, of losing them forever. So uh, if you're in the area, hit me up. I've got a nice bookshelf. <laughs> Rana. Thanks once again. Huge pleasure, Kaiser, and a huge pleasure, Jeremy. Thank you both so much for having me on Seneca, and hope we'll get to make it uh, the third time at some point. Yeah, well, I'm going to be out in early March uh, at Oxford for the Oxford China Forum. My my sister's actually moving to Oxford in a a couple of months. Her and her husband have just bought a house out there, so hopefully we'll get another chance to chat soon. I'm sure we will. I look forward to that. Jeremy, great to talk to you as always. Hail Satan. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, thanks once again to Juan Castellanos. I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> uh, facing history in ourselves for helping to organize this podcast with Rana and for helping us to record today. So thanks very much, Juan. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. And of course, follow us on Twitter at SubChina News. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.